Welcome to Conversations for Life, a marriage and family podcast from Cross Life with hosts Jonathan and Kathleen. Each episode, we sit down and talk about the things that matter most to those that matter most to you. We're so glad you're with us today. Please pull up a chair and join in the conversation. And welcome back to Conversations for Life. Today, we're going to continue our look at what the Bible says regarding men and women and and their relationship to one another. Last week, we looked at Genesis 2, and we saw how the driving point of the narrative regarding the creation of Adam and Eve is their oneness. When God declares it is not good for man to be alone, and he makes a helper suitable for Adam, the whole point of the ensuing narrative is to show how Eve is made to be Adam's perfect companion and meets his core internal and external needs. And the whole point is summed up by the author himself in verses 22 through 23. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So as we talked about, the whole point is the oneness of the man and the woman that's attained through the marriage relationship. Yeah, and in that conversation, Kathleen, we discussed multiple ways that Genesis 2 paints a a truly radical, subversive worldview um, regarding men and women and their relationships to one another. And so I would highly encourage any listener who has not done so, if you have time, to go back and listen to that conversation. And which what was that called again? Uh, One. And one. It, it, yeah, one, and it's uh, God's design for, for men and women in Genesis 2. Great. Um, so today, though, we're going to move on to Genesis chapter 3, which is where the event typically referred to as the fall happens. Yeah, so the fall is when Adam and Eve, who were made good and holy by God, who enjoyed a perfect relationship with God in the Garden of Eden, and who had been given a mission by God to make the whole earth a holy habitation of the Lord by filling it with image bearers like themselves, and subduing the earth after the manner of the Garden of Eden, this is where Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent in the garden, and they eat the fruit of the tree that God had forbidden them to eat. Yeah, so there's an immense amount of really important content in this chapter, and explains to us all the reasons why the world is so messed up, and why our own hearts are so fundamentally broken and full of evil thoughts and desires But uh, since our focus is on the Bible's teaching regarding the relationship between men and women, we are going to focus uh, mainly on what happens in light of Adam and Eve's choice to rebel against God. Uh, Beginning in verse 14, God announces a series of curses against the three creatures involved in the rebellion, against the serpent, the woman, and the man. Yeah, and Jonathan, I think um, we should start with the issue of authority. We haven't talked about that too much in relation to Genesis 1 and 2, But I think we have to talk about it here in Genesis 3. So how would you summarize the question of authority as it relates to the narrative of Adam and Eve's rebellion here in in Genesis 3? Yeah, that's a, of course, it's a a hotly debated topic. I think the issue of authority, you know, it's a good place for us to start as we look at Genesis 3. We didn't discuss it up to now because I don't believe that that issue is a focal point of the narratives in Genesis 1 and 2, but it does come to play here in Genesis 3. Uh, By authority, we're asking the question, when it comes to the relationship between a man and a woman and their relationship to God, who is the primary representative? Because you see, just as Genesis 2 says, that when a man and a woman marry, they become one, 
And in biblical terms, we call this relationship a covenant. And a covenant is when two people or groups of people enter into a formal relationship where there are promises, commitments, and expectations made between the parties. Anyone who reads the Bible closely will see that the Bible from page 1 to the very last page presents God's relationship to human beings as a covenantal relationship. And this means that when God creates Adam and Eve, He creates them specifically to be in a relationship with Himself. And, but we have to ask, what kind of relationship? Well, it's a covenantal relationship. And this is absolutely vital to understand. Otherwise, the whole biblical narrative, quite frankly, just makes no sense. Yeah, and um, I know a lot of people wonder, why did God even allow Adam and Eve the opportunity to sin? Hmm. Why did he put a tree with forbidden fruit in the garden? Why would God intentionally create a situation where Adam and Eve could rebel, given the awful consequences of that choice Hmm. and God being omniscient? Um, And the only way to make sense of this situation is if we see that from the very beginning, God intended to enter in a certain kind of relationship with human beings, as you said, a covenantal relationship. And because of this, God gave Adam and Eve not only the external opportunity to disobey him, the tree, he also gave them the internal possibility Mm. as well. So what does that mean? It means that Adam and Eve, being made in the image of God possessed attributes, like we do today, that are relatively similar to God's own attributes. Mm. And this gave them the internal capacity to think, feel, and act for themselves. And this included the capacity to do so in opposition to God. But to do that, to act without reference to God's will or really in violation and rebellion against it, is a fundamental perversion of our nature. Man, that is so good. Um, so in other words, for Adam and Eve to fulfill the purpose for which God gave them, they had to possess attributes that could, if directed toward a different purpose, cause great harm. I'll say that one more time. You know, For Adam and Eve to fulfill the purpose for which God gave them, they had to possess attributes that could, if directed toward a different purpose, cause great harm. So, you know, imagine a group of highly trained nuclear engineers who were trained to operate nuclear power plants. Well, those same engineers, if their land was overrun by an evil regime, could be forced to use their skills to make nuclear bombs that would destroy life rather than sustain it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good example. So there's great potential. uh, and The same skills could cause life or destroy it. Right, great potential for good, and also great potential for evil. Um, And Herman Bovink, a great theologian in the 20th century, says it this way, and listen up, this is an amazing quote. God decided to take humanity on the perilous path of covenantal freedom rather than elevating it by a single act of power over the possibility of sin and death. Isn't that amazing? Mm. Can you you say it one more (laughs) time? God decided to take humanity on the perilous path of covenantal freedom rather than elevating it by a single act of power over the possibility of sin and death. So in other words, because the kind of relationship God wanted to have with humanity was a covenantal relationship, it meant that he had to create them with create us with the capacity to enter into this relationship with him as a lesser but willing partner. So that means he had to create humans with the internal capacity and external opportunity to sin. Hmm. Um, and the path did indeed turn out to be perilous, uh, as God already knew. And that's the story that's written throughout the Bible in our own lives. 
And really, you know, I was thinking about this, talking with my six-year-old, <laughs> the, uh, the person who was most perilous for was God himself. You mm. know, Jesus' death on the cross, that was the highest cost that could possibly be paid. And so mm. in this perilous path of covenantal freedom that God takes us on, um, he pays, he, he makes the greatest sacrifices. And, uh, but he chooses, he chose, he chooses this kind of, actual, genuine relationship with mm. us rather than just creating us as automatons. So that's, that's an incredible thing, especially when you consider the fact that God has always been eternally and perfectly happy in himself. He did not create human beings because he was lonely or because he needs us. His act of creating us and creating us such that we can have a genuine relationship with him, a covenant mm. with him, is purely out of love. And, and, and that's the thing, you know, for God to make us with all the attributes that we possess as human beings that we like having because we're human, right? Included the possibility uh, internally of of disobeying God, and and so uh, you know the way Bobbing puts it is just brilliant. And and essentially, when when God made human beings, He did so in such a way that that would take us on a, the perilous path of covenantal freedom. That's just such a brilliant phrase. Um, man, we, you know, we could keep exploring that idea, but, but back to our discussion about marriage, the marriage relationship is also a covenant, and God himself, as a covenant-making, covenant-sustaining God, takes any covenant relationship very seriously. And this means that when a man and a woman enter into marriage, God honors that marriage covenant by treating them as one. It's really important for people to remember that when man and woman enter into marriage, that God will honor that marriage covenant. Because, you know, that's God is a God who honors covenants, and so he will treat them as one. Now, this doesn't mean that their individuality is just obliterated. The man and woman still relate to God as individuals, but it means that God will always relate to them as individuals in the context of their marriage union. Mm, that's really, that's a good way of thinking about it. And as just a human analogy, you could say, we all work at a company, uh, but in different departments. Mm. So... Just because I work in Department A doesn't erase me as a person, but whenever someone interacts with me at work, they'll always interact with me as a member of that department. And if I worked in a different department, they would interact with me based on my membership in that department when we're doing work things. Yeah, so the idea is your individuality isn't lost, but um, who you are and, you know, in, that, in that analogy, where you work will affect the way that you're treated. And that's the same way when we enter into marriage, God still relates to us as individuals, but he doesn't ignore the context that we are now one together with another person, and God looks at us as that one unit. Um, and it's a very helpful analogy that you just gave. And as we enter into marriage, you know, God will interact with us um, as individuals in and through our marriage union, because God himself will never dishonor a marriage covenant by ignoring it. And so when it comes to this relationship, the Bible is clear that the man holds the responsibility before God as a representative for that relationship. Mm. One distinguishing feature of all covenants is that there's always a representative who bears the primary responsibility for maintaining the covenant promises, the commitment, and the expectations for both parties. So in the case of God's covenants with human beings, there's always a human representative who bears responsibility before God for affirming and maintaining the fulfillment of the promises and the commitments and the expectations of the covenant. So Adam is the first representative to bear this responsibility. Then there's Noah, then Abraham, then uh, the chosen descendants, descendants from Abraham, and then Moses, and then the rulers of Israel. 
And so ultimately, though, it's Jesus who takes on this role for humanity. And this is exactly why when we believe in his name, we are saved, because he is now our representative before God. And when we believe in him, we are joined to his people, the group that he represents. And so God now reckons us righteous and holy because we are in Jesus's group. Yeah. So in marriage, as a being a covenant, the man bears, the husband bears the singular responsibility to be that representative before God on behalf of his family. And with this responsibility comes authority in the home to lead his family to know God, to follow God, and to experience the blessings that come from God as a result. Yeah. And but you, this is where it gets really critical. Because this is where the, I think the, the, the dividing line between the way our culture approaches authority and the way the Bible approaches authority is where we see the real um, issue. Mm, yeah. Whenever the Bible speaks about authority, its worldview, its perspective uh, is, is, um, that the Bible has about authority is not related to what we might think of as power, but rather to responsibility. In other words, you know, when the Bible uses the language of authority, or it portrays a role as having some kind of authority, the association the Bible itself makes with authority is not power and the exercise of power over others, as we might associate with the word today, but rather with responsibility and the exercise of responsibility in a certain context. So let's take a ruler in Israel, for example. The ruler in Israel had primary authority in Israel to direct people's daily lives. The nation's military ventures and perhaps most importantly, the people's spiritual lives. This authority was not, however, given to him that he can accrue worldly, political, military, social, and economic power for himself, but rather that he might carry out the responsibilities of leading the people in maintaining their covenant promises and commitments and expectations before God. Yeah, so when it comes, and I think that's, I do want to say that's really key, that this exercise of authority is is not about lording it over people, dominating, uh, not about having power, accruing things for yourself. It's about the responsibility that you bear. And so, you know, that idea of the servant leaders. Um, yes. And, and, you know, Kathleen, back in Genesis 3, um, this dynamic really is clear in a number of ways. And so I want to add that the intent of the author in Genesis 3 is to show that Adam and Eve's choice to rebel against God is most condemning of the man. In other words, a big part of this narrative in Genesis 3 is not just to tell us that Adam and Eve rebelled against God, it's to tell us that a major reason that they did so is because Adam failed to carry out his God-given responsibility. Hmm, yeah. Well, the first place we see this show up is the fact that the serpent goes and talks to the woman, not the man. Hmm. This is a direct attempt by him to undermine God's created order by tempting the woman to make a decision without the input of her husband. Yeah, you know, as we said last week, the central aim of the whole narrative in Genesis 2 is to show that God's design for marriage is the union of one man and one woman such that the two become one. But here in Genesis 3, at the very beginning of this temptation story, we see the serpent interacting with Eve only, and Adam isn't there. Now, this is not saying that every choice a woman makes, she must consult with her husband. That's absurd and sexist. But when it comes to such a fundamental life and spiritual issue, when it comes to a dialogue questioning the very goodness and trustworthiness of God, when it comes to the issues of such magnitude that involve life and death, well, it ought to strike us as a huge red flag that Eve is dialoguing on her own with the serpent and is not bringing her husband into the dialogue. 
Yeah, and some commentators have noted that later on when she eats the fruit, it says in verse 6, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So there is a question in the narrative Mm. about whether or not Adam was by her side the whole time and simply silent, um, or whether whether the with her is more loose in the sense that maybe he was nearby. But however you take it, it's unmistakable that Eve's dialogue with a serpent is already a troublesome sign from the get-go. So imagine if someone (laughs) showed up at your door um, offering to buy your house and all your possessions in exchange for the deed to a magnificent mansion he just happened to have in his back pocket. Uh, So I'm sure all of us would have this internal voice saying, don't trust him, he's scamming you. And we would recognize not only that talking to the salesman is a bad idea, but we would we would see the very idea of a wife considering making that choice without talking with her husband, that would that would show that there's a really big marriage issue uh, right. as well as like a financial <laughs> and you know right. wisdom issue. Um, you know no one would ever consider such a monumental decision without talking with their spouse. You know even just selling your house in general, you know you wouldn't right. just run off and do that husband or wife without right. talking right. to your spouse but especially when it's obviously foolish and goes against uh, every bit of sense and reason. Um, And as you said, Jonathan, the situation here in Genesis 3, it's much bigger than a house, which is pretty big. It's about life and death, the state of the whole cosmos, (laughs) and their eternal life and that of all of their you know, descendants. So yeah, big deal. high stakes. And I, I personally am of the persuasion that Adam was around at least close enough to intervene. So I think his silence speaks volumes about his failure to do exactly what he has the responsibility for doing as the woman's husband. And I think that the narrative wants us to see this. You know, the fact that this whole dialogue between Eve and the serpent is only between them two, and the fact that she, she then gives some to her husband, it's a damning indictment upon the part of the man for failing to carry out his covenantal responsibility. You know, in verse 7, we have an account of what happened after the man and woman ate the fruit. It says that the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and that they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So this is a direct tie-in to the last verse of chapter 2, which we talked about last week. And it's, really, it's intended to show us that the marriage covenant, which was founded upon trust and intimacy and vulnerability, has now been shattered. At the end of that chapter, at the end of chapter 2, after the man and the woman presumably get married, in the Edenic sense, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so here in verse 7 of chapter 3, after they've eaten the fruit, we have a direct undoing of the core descriptor that Genesis 2 uses to describe the man and woman's oneness in marriage. Yeah, and actually next week, we want to look more closely at these verses and the dynamic of it regarding marriage, but we're sticking to the issue of authority right now in Genesis 3, and we see it come up directly in verse 9. So God comes looking for the man and the woman, and they're hiding in the bushes. And verse 9 says, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he, God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Mm. So God goes directly to the man and questions him about what has happened. Uh, Even though in the first dialogue Adam was absent, uh, now he's the one that God calls to account. 
And I think this shows how, as you were saying, Jonathan, now that the man and woman are one, God looks to the person who bears the responsibility of representing his family before God when he demands an account of what's happened. Yes, and again, because God views them as one in light of their marriage covenant, he goes to the one who's responsible now for maintaining his family's promises and commitments and expectations before him. And of course, you know, uh, what do we see the man doing? Well, he's blaming others. And in a classic example of guilt avoidance, he first tries to deflect. When God asks, where are you? He, say, he doesn't say, well, hey, God, I rebelled against you and did what you told me not to do. No, he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. Now, there are massive real and spiritual implications for Adam's statement, but for now, we should just highlight how he is in the act of blame shifting. Next, he says, he blames his wife, and he says, you know, when God, when God asks him if he's eating the fruit, he says, well, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me some. So in a way, he's blaming God. It's your fault. You're the one who gave me this woman. And then he blames the woman, and, and hey, she gave it to me. He does as much as he can to, to make himself as least responsible for what he's done as he, as he can. As he can. Yeah, it's pretty thick with irony to the point that if we weren't talking about sin and this the incredibly weighty consequences that come from this, it'd be almost comedic. Yeah, you know, if you, in another context, that kind of uh, episode could be pretty funny, right? Yeah. Um, uh, but but you know, Adam neglected and forsook his responsibility before God to be the one who would guarantee his family's faithfulness to the promises and the commitments and the expectations of the covenant. And so, even though Eve took the first bite. Adam, uh, Adam's choice uh, and his silence is far more consequential. Mm, that's, a, that's an interesting point. Um, well, then finally, we see the issue of authority come up again in the order of the curses that God pronounces over the three creatures involved in the rebellion. So upon the serpent, God pronounces that he will be cursed more than all other beasts of the field and will go on the ground and he gives the first glimpse of the gospel when he announces that from the offspring of the woman will come one who will crush the serpent's head. And that's pointing to Jesus. That's, that's the first hint of uh, mm. Jesus' redemption here, right after, right after the fall. And this tells us right away that the serpent is more than just a creature. He has a cosmic identity. And later on, Scripture will look back at this event and uh, identify him as Satan. Yeah, and then, so after God curses the serpent, he, he then passes judgment on to Eve and then Adam. And I believe the order of, the, uh, of this judgment is intentional, uh, beginning with the one least responsible for the choice of the one most responsible. The serpent is least responsible because even though he tempted, he did not make them eat the fruit. You know, ultimately, they chose to do it on their own. Uh, the woman is second because even though she is the one who first talked to the serpent and ate the fruit, she did not bear the chief responsibility before God of ensuring that the family walked in covenant faithfulness and obedience. Adam comes last because though you could say you know, that he played the least part in the whole episode in terms of action, uh, he, he really played the biggest role because through his inaction, he failed to carry out his God-given responsibility. And that's, those are some really interesting points because I think some people have either taught directly or they've heard from someone else, gotten the idea that like Eve is you know, the one who ruined everything for everyone and women are therefore... Yeah, we'll be actually talking more <laughs> about that next week because we'll be looking just at verse 316. Right, so we will we'll get into some yeah. more of that. Um, but these are some great points to, to talk about with Adam as the representative here um, and, and his role, his responsibility and in the ways he didn't fulfill that. 
So um, we have reached our time limit, but we will keep talking about the issue of authority in the husband and wife relationship more next week, um, especially regarding the curse that God pronounces on Eve in 3.16. So that's a, that's a big uh, verse, and there's some controversial things and interpretations, and so we're going to get into that. Yeah. And then after that, hopefully we'll have a chance to go and look at the dynamic of shame and nakedness that's now present in the relationship between the husband and wife. Yeah, and I, I just want to say that for me, today's discussion, it was really setting the stage for next week. I'm really looking forward to talking more specifically about the question of authority as it relates to Genesis 3.16. But we'll have to wait. Uh, you know, we can't do it all in one day. But until then, let me just encourage you listeners to go to our website, www.crosslifetoday.org, for additional resources and podcasts. Uh, as always, please keep in mind that we are a listener-supported ministry. You can go to our website, and there's a page there about how to sign up to make a contribution. Any amount is welcome. Until next time, folks, take care and God bless. God bless.